Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Welcome back to another episode of FNS On Air, this time live from the ASRM 2022 Annual Meeting in Anaheim, California. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bordaletto, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Kurt Barnhart. Kurt, how are you? Wonderful, Pietro. It's great to be here out and about, and this time in Anaheim instead of sitting in my office and trying to fiddle with the computer. Better to, better to do this in real life than on Zoom. Kurt, FNS is here in full force. What are we expecting out of this meeting from Fertility and Sterility, and what do you think this podcast is going to look like? Because our listeners probably remember last year's podcast, where this was our most popular episode of the year, two-part series put together by our executive producer, Dr. Michael Simone, and you got a snapshot of what was going on in the meeting. How will this year be different? So I like these live podcasts because you get to see kind of the science in its nascent form. You know, what we're discussing, the articles in FNS in our typical podcast, we have a finished product. But now you're getting to see the evolution, and, you're, and it's fun to see the excitement in the, the presenters. They really relish their discovery, and it's really a, a better way to digest science, especially at their early stages. And for us, it's fun because we only get to do this once. This doesn't get edited or post-production. This is, this is live from the meeting with all the good and the bad from how we learn the science and disseminate the science. Our plan for this meeting is to invite authors who are prize paper winners. We were having people from the ASRM leadership in fertility and sterility. If you could reflect back last year, Kurt, what was some of the favorite stuff that you had interviewed on the podcast that you enjoyed listening to and are hoping to have more of this meeting? I really like the prize papers. I think that these people were recognized by their peers, not in a peer-reviewed paper that's coming into FNS, but they were identified as like, this is exciting new science. And what's wonderful for me is how genuine it is. The excitement in their voice when they're presenting the science, the novelty of it. And I hope that that reflects in the podcast. Well, we look forward to sharing with you, all of our listeners, a series of wonderful interviews with scientists, physicians, nurses, and people related to the field of reproductive medicine live from the ASRM meeting over this podcast episode in our next podcast series. I want to thank all the listeners again. I hope that this kind of variety is what you're looking for, and we strive to give you really good quality science, but also a little bit of entertainment as well. And, And don't worry, we'll be back with a December table of contents in no time. Thank you, Pietro. Hope you enjoy live from the ASRM FNS on air. Hi, welcome back to Fertility and Sterility on Air, live from the ASRM 2022 meeting. I'm your host, Pietro Bordaletto. You're going to have to edit out like 30 of those. I keep saying that every time. And I'm joined this afternoon with Dr. Jen Bakkinson, presenter at the prize paper session earlier today. Welcome, Dr. Bakkinson. Thank you, Pietro. It's great to be here. So tell us about what you presented at this session, because it's been getting a lot of buzz. We've talked about it on the FNS podcast earlier this month. People have been talking about it on social media, and you hear people talking about it at the meeting. But tell our listeners who may not have been here to listen to your oral presentation. Absolutely. So just by way of a little background, we know that women are increasingly represented within medicine. And yet, persistent gender disparities exist in terms of time to promotion, achievement of academic rank, or even assumption of the highest leadership positions. 
we hypothesize that potentially fertility and family building concerns may be playing a role. And so the objective of this study was really to look at the extent to which women in medicine alter their career trajectories and family building plans in order to accommodate and balance parenthood and career. So this was a survey that we conducted over 700 female physicians across all specialties, levels of training, um, and practice settings. How did you recruit them? We recruited it via a social media campaign. The link was also tweeted by study investigators, and it was also distributed across uh, different medical organizations, including the American Medical Association, the American Medical Women's Association. And I suspect I already know the answer, but why specifically target female physicians in your survey? We targeted female physicians because we hypothesize that there are very specific pressures related to the duration of medical training that coincide specifically with the timing of childbearing that female physicians face that would not necessarily be faced by all physicians. What did you find? What was the most surprising result for you? You know, I think some of the findings that we uh, uncovered probably have been uh, shown in previous literature. For example, the fact that female physicians are overwhelmingly likely to either have delayed or be currently delaying childbearing, over 80%. I think for me, what was the most surprising was the extent to which women actually alter their careers in order to accommodate parenthood. Um, So some of the things that we found were that a large number of women end up taking extended leaves, choosing different specialties. Over a third of women reported specifically not taking opportunities for career advancement that were offered to them in order to accommodate parenthood. In looking at the results, both the primary and your secondary outcomes, were there themes that you noticed that may lend themselves towards solution building? Or how do we fix this problem or improve the state of parenting and academic career and advancement? Any, any answers? And I think, you know, if we're thinking about real policy reform, there's kind of two broad areas that I think of in looking at our results. And one would be insurance coverage for both OSA vitrification as well as for fertility coverage. At the med student level, the resident level, the fellow level, where where is the sweet spot? I think all across that domain. I mean, really, these services need to be available to what is clearly a high-risk population. And then I think the second area that really we need to hit is parental leave. I think currently parental leave policies in this country leave a lot of room for improvement, but specifically maternity leave policies tend to take precedence over paternity leave policies. And potentially, if we were to be able to create paternity leave policies as well, we might start to chip away at some of this social expectation that women are taking on the full amount of the childcare in addition to balancing their careers. Your two cents on a mandatory paternity leave? I would be for it. I mean, again, Pietro, you recall during our residency, there was a big change at our residency institution where parent, uh, paternity leave became universal for all residents, and I think it was a hugely positive change. And I think it's something that's going to be necessary if we're ever going to close this gender disparity that we see in medicine today. Well, I'm so glad that this research was presented. It's been talked about. It's been highlighted. And you're here talking about it on the podcast. What do you do next with this data? What's kind of the next line of inquiry? So currently, we're actually, this, these results were the results of an interim analysis. We are currently analyzing the results of the final survey, which had almost 1,200 respondents. I think once we have that final data set, we can try and get a little more nuanced in terms of which women might be highest at risk. But really, I think at that point, we take it to the next steps of figuring out how we can get this uh, knowledge in the hands of policymakers to affect change. Print out a copy and leave it at the GME office. Thanks, <laughs> Dr. Bakkinson. We appreciate you coming to the podcast. All right. Thanks, Pietro. 
Hi, welcome back to another segment of uh, the FNS On Air podcast. I'm Pietro Bordelato, and I'm here with our plenary speaker from this morning, Dr. Nicolas Blacca. Yeah. Nicolas, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. So I have to tell you, I was sitting in the back of your uh, discussion this morning, and I've never seen more phones out, people taking photos and videos of what you were showing them on the screen. And I, there was two things happening. Everyone's jaw was on the ground, and no one could stop recording. And after the session, if you opened up Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, everyone was showing the videos that you were showing. Thank you I think so people much. were just so yeah. impressed with what you're bringing to the table in terms of imaging of these structures that we've seen statically we've done a little bit of time lapse but this feels like we we're in a different universe yeah it's just pretty to see it like this we we know or we suspect what should be happening in an embryo but it's just nice to be able to see it using fluorescence and all that so it's like even if you don't understand anything about what i'm showing you understand the visual of what's happening yeah, you see cell division yeah. you see cytoskeleton yeah it's i can get the attention of just normal civilians because it's pretty to look at. Yes. Um, you know, some other people can do amazing science, but they show you just a graph. Yes. And you go like, eh. so so that makes my life a little bit easier to, to catch the attention. There's, of, uh, there's something about uh, science being pretty and entertaining that yeah. I think gets the message across or at least captures an audience. It's true. It has to be pretty before it's yes. important. And yours was, yours was certainly pretty. I'm kidding, but yeah. But for the people who yeah. weren't there, sure, tell no. us how this line of inquiry developed. Was this a... Yeah. a, a by mistake thing was this but, a, yeah totally by mistake it's always by yeah. mistake yeah I was told during my PhD that I should go and do a postdoc in imaging mm-hmm. live imaging technologies in developmental biology I went to a lab Scott <laughs> Fraser at Caltech and mm-hmm. he was like one of the pioneers using imaging to study embryonic development and they were doing it in every animal species you could think of except, All the, except the mouse because I heard it's difficult I heard they die very quickly just no one was one of those things that people just were not doing but there wasn't there wasn't a good reason why so totally by default I tried and it works like you can image mouse embryos and then we develop more and more techniques to to label them better with different tricks and all that so now we spend the last 10 years that's kind of like my business model you label things in a mouse embryo and go and image and you're always like one out of four things you decide to image on the cell inside the embryo it can be part of the cytoskeleton the membrane the nucleus you name it one out of four will look oh that's pretty that's interesting and then you can follow up and discover things randomly and what's happening with the other three is that a technological failure is that a limitation of the technology why why can't you see everything at the same time all together well you're always going to have one yeah something that just experimentally doesn't work too well you don't get a good signal or or nothing very interesting happens like you just sometimes you just label a structure inside the cell and it does that doesn't, nothing. nothing does it move does it yeah. divide does yeah. it separate yeah so what's been the but, biggest surprise for you in this line of work that you think 10 years ago we had no idea but you had a, a discovery an aha moment something that really blew your mind and got you excited probably never happened we discover everything that was out there to discover but that's it there's nothing great that's going to be discovered ever again but but luckily we have a lot of like oh that's pretty interesting moments so because we found things that, oh, what is that thing? And then you first think, is that an imaging artifact or something? And once you rule out that it isn't, then you can find things that you didn't suspect at all. 
the more exciting thing now is to move that to the human embryo. That's mm -hmm. the, the challenge. And can you do that in Pennsylvania? No, it, it's even harder than in other states. So, yeah, the NIH doesn't give you funding to do this type of research. Pennsylvania doesn't give you funding to do this type of research. So we do it through collaborations, like with Boston IVF and uh, people at iGenomics in Spain and other places. So um, that's a way to do it these days. And, I mean, it's going to happen sooner or later. It's just like working with recombinant DNA. 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Or remember human embryonic stem cells during the Bush administration? Very taboo, or, very right. taboo. And now that's fine, you can do it. So it's just, but until that happens, we need to work around all these regulations and... So do you think if the regula regulatory environment was different, this kind of research would be much further along? Or is there still technologic issues to work out to apply what you know in mice to human embryos? I think that there isn't enough people that want to do this. It's obvious we should be imaging human embryos, um, but you have all the human embryologists and all the IVF companies and all that that do amazing work, but they just don't know how to do any imaging. And then you have imaging people, but they work in completely different systems. They don't have and access to embryos or busy IVF programs. And even if you give them access, oh, I need to change my whole lab model and all that. So a lot of people are just comfortable in their thing. There's a lot of crowd behavior. These days, it seems like everyone wants to make artificial embryos out of stem cells, which is great, but it seems like everyone, that's all they want to do. A couple of years ago, what was it? IPS cells. So we tend to see that. Like, uh, it's nice if you can avoid the crowds and do your. Yeah, but it means that you're you're without peers, or you're without a group of people that are really trying to do this all together in a collaborative effort. Which is fine. Yeah, peers are overrated <laughs> sometimes because the problem is that then you follow too much your peers' sure. opinions and all that. You, you don't know, have the pressure of the group going in one direction. Yeah, I mean, working with peers is great, and working without peers is great, too. I started my lab in Australia, very far from everything, and I was very disconnected from conferences and meetings and all that, and so it kind of helped me to just do what it, my own thing and don't get opinions from, because, yeah. If I had to fast forward 10 years, where do you think this research will be? Will it be entering a <laughs> clinical realm? Will it still be largely investigational? What's your hope and dream for this research? I hope we and other people working on these things, we should be able to start doing live imaging of human embryos. As a with, form of selection or as a form of prioritizing embryos for reproductive yes, potential? to some extent within the next 10 years, it should happen. Because we're still doing what, what's the state of the art now. All these like automated DIC, bright film microscopes. I mean, the technology is like 50, 80 years old, right? We just make it automated. Just applying and it in different just, ways. To a computer that can do a time lapse out of it. Um, so it's time to move to the next. But um, I think what's really holding us now is the, the regulatory limitations yeah. that we have around it. But it should happen. 10 years, you say, it's yeah. feasible. Well, it depends who gets elected in two years in the United States. We'll see. Oh, yeah, the elections. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you is we, as a field now, are hyper-focused on how to prioritize embryos for transfer. Which one will give us the best shot to achieve a pregnancy with that first transfer? And my impression is that it feels like we're all doing different things. There's the group working on non-invasive genetic testing of spent culture media. Right. There's the groups working on metabolomics, the right. proteomics group, the fluorescence imaging. 
Do you think if we put all of these things together, there's an additive benefit of multimodal embryo selection, or do you really think that there's one that's just going to be so much better than the others and give us so much more depth of information that it's going to win out? Because right now it feels like we're all moving in five parallel tracks yeah. trying to figure out which one will be best. I, yeah, this sounds horrible, and I, I'm definitely so not an expert. I look at it from outside, but looking at it from outside, the fact that we need to come up with such big multimodal thing and look at so many variables, it probably means that there is not one thing that works super well yet. So we need to a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It seems like that's probably the best way now. And the cream will rise to the top. The best one will find its way to, to market or to into our hands for as a clinical decision tool. Yeah, I guess maybe that's, yeah. But again, I'm really an outsider here. I'm just like a hippie cell biologist that started to look at Show mouse embryos. Show up with embryos. some slides and give some talks. Right, and, and I get invited into these meetings and it's wonderful, but I'm really an outsider yeah, here in, in a way. For people who are interested in this kind of work and want to collaborate, want to contribute, what are the things that you need for this research to continue to move in a direction that will benefit us as a reproductive medicine field. Yeah, everyone, when I give talks, many people come, hey, I have this clinic and we have tons of human embryos. Do you want them? Can you do something with them? And unfortunately, it's like I have more offers to more embryos that we can. So right now, um, we need to start you know, working together to see where we're going to be imaging those embryos. And we need people that have funding and money to start making, you know, deciding, okay, let's buy a microscope, let's set up a small lab to image human embryos until we can do this with, you know, NIH funding and so on in the future. Uh, sooner or later, I am guessing that's going to happen because there's nothing wrong to imaging donated human embryos sure. at very early stages that have been donated. You're, you're just not to growing them for 15, 20 exactly. days in culture. It's, it's, so, it's, it's really not a big ethical issue that I see there, but yet it's going to take time. So we just need the space and the funding, and it's not a lot, but just to start, you know, people with the, with the okay, I decide to spend a few, two, three hundred thousand dollars, maybe put together different people just to buy a very nice microscope. And then and start collecting some data. Yeah, we just need to start doing imaging again. Every IVF clinic, every hospital has thousands of embryos that have been donated for us to do this type of work. And they'll be happy to see how those embryos look. Yeah, and again, it's pretty to watch, right? So Very let, pretty let, to watch. Let's it, do it. it helps that it's pretty to yeah, watch. Yeah, it, it helps. Let's do it. We we learn some things for sure. I think all of us all of us are very excited for the promise of what this technology could mean from a investigational perspective. Yeah. What it may mean from a clinical perspective, but I think science for science's sake is good enough for me at least. I think it's it's nice that people are generating new knowledge and exploring innovative lines of inquiry. Yeah. And it's great. I love it. I love to be invited to these meetings. I love this crowd and, and it's fantastic to interact with uh, It's a with bit more lively here. than I imagine what your conferences are typically like or... Um, yes, much more lively. We have, it's, it's we have pharmaceutical parties. I, th I imagine I, there are less pharmaceutical parties on your yes, side. Yes. Yeah, this is more glamorous. Yeah, more glamorous. This is almost like a Formula One of conferences yes, yes. compared to the... Yours Gordon, is IndyCar. Or oh, yeah, the Gordon conferences. <laughs> you, you don't want to go to those. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for coming by the podcast. Thank you for presenting and sharing your work with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Hi, and welcome back to FNS On Air, live from ASRM 2022. 
I'm here with Dr. Cassie Roca from the University of Colorado Shady Grove Fertility Program. Cassie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Pietro. It's great to see you. It's good to see you. For the listeners, they don't know that Cassie and I go way back um, to residency where she was the chief resident and I was the intern. So it's always nice to see you at these meetings every year. It's wonderful to see you, Pietro. Cassie, what is the University of Colorado presenting at this meeting this year? You, it sounds like you have some fellow research projects. Yeah, we have some great fellow research projects in conjunction with Shady Grove Fertility. And so one of the things that we were looking at is a SART question. So um, one of my fellows, Dr. Ivy Larston, who is going to be joining us at Shady Grove Fertility Colorado, um, was looking at patients who undergo fertility preservation for medical indications and looking at whether AMH is going to predict oocyte yield after ovarian stimulation compared to those who are undergoing elective fertility preservation. And does it? It does. Really? So it's reassuring. In a dramatic way or in a worrisome way? In a great way. In a way that we know that AMH is tightly correlated with um, how ovaries are likely to stimulate and how many eggs you're likely to get. And we're seeing that same thing in those who are undergoing fertility preservation for medically indicated reasons. So this is just reassuring um, and great for counseling patients, you know, her in those situations that they can expect similar outcomes to those who are freezing for other elective reasons. And when can we expect to see this submitted to fertility and sterility? I think uh, Dr. Larson is actively working on the manuscript actually in her hotel room as we speak. That's how you know you have a good fellow. Forthcoming. Dr. Lurston is top-notch. Awesome. Well, we look forward to seeing it in Fertility and Sterility. Thanks for stopping by the booth to tell us about it. Wonderful. All right. Our next interview is with Iris Lee, who's a second-year fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. And Iris, your research was really fascinating, and congratulations on being selected for one of the prize sessions. Thank you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about first some of the background for some of the work and then specifically what you did in this study? Yeah, of course. So a lot of the literature has looked at kind of like big picture IVF outcomes. So mostly live birth rates in terms of racial and ethnic disparities. But there hasn't been a lot of granularity in trying to understand, you know, there's so many steps to the process of going from stimulation to live birth and where in that process is the gap happening. And so we were interested in kind of the first step, which is ovarian stimulation, and seeing if response to stimulation during IVF differs by race and ethnicity. Um, So we did a retrospective study looking at all patients who underwent stimulation for any indication, including egg and embryo freezing, over a seven-year period, and we found that the ovarian responsiveness, which we measured using the ovarian sensitivity index, was actually higher in black and Hispanic patients. And let me just stop you for a second, because mm-hmm. that's, I think, somewhat of a new concept, this yeah. ovarian sensitivity index. Yeah. What is it, and how do you calculate it? Yeah, so it's meant to measure responsiveness in a given cycle, so you calculate it by dividing the total number of eggs retrieved by the total gonadotropin dose that was administered in that cycle and multiplying by a thousand. Um, And some of the prior studies have looked at cutoffs for low, normal, high response, and normal is, you know, somewhere between 1.6 and 10. Um, It's kind of like the the, um, range that it spans. And I think it's a really interesting measure. Obviously, it's not perfect, right? It's not getting at maturity. It's not getting at all the other steps after egg retrieval. But I like that it incorporates the dosing because I think that's an element that we often aren't able to account for adequately when we're looking at response to stimulation. 
And how much of that did you correlate, not just with ovarian reserve parameters, but with BMI? So in the prior literature, the OSI has been, in general, lower in patients with higher BMIs. We found, actually, that we found that there was a slightly lower OSI in patients with higher BMI, but it wasn't statistically significant in our patient population, um, which I don't know if that's because of kind of the range of BMIs that we had, that there weren't a lot of extreme outliers, um, but that was what we found. And so tell me a little bit more about what you did in the study. So you looked at OSI, and then where did you go from there? Yeah, so we started with OSI, and we found that after adjusting for covariates, that black and Hispanic patients had higher OSIs than white patients, um, and Asian patients had very similar OSIs to white patients, and this was actually um, in direct contradiction to our hypothesis. And so, um, as you do when you find something that is unexpected, you kind of like go down this rabbit hole and see where it takes you. So, um, we were always interested in kind of the the ultimate outcome of live birth. And so we also looked at that in our patient population and found very similar findings to the existing literature that black and Hispanic patients have lower live birth rates than white patients. So then the question became, well, this is weird. Like we found actually that black and Hispanic patients seem to respond better during stimulation, which is the opposite of what we expected. And yet despite that like initial good outcome, so to speak, they're not actually achieving the ultimate outcome that everyone is interested in. And so we tried to look at how OSI as a measure of ovarian responsiveness relates to live birth. And we found that it really doesn't predict live birth in black and Hispanic patients, although it does in white and Asian patients. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, a long time ago, our group did a study where we looked at oocyte donation, and we specifically chose oocyte donation and broke it apart by race because we thought it was a unique opportunity to take apart the impact of stimulation versus the impact of implantation, and our results were actually the exact same. We saw lower live birth rates in an African-American or black population, we didn't see the same in a Hispanic population. Mm -hmm. But we hypothesized that that lower live birth rate was largely due to the higher prevalence of fibroids Mm -hmm. in a black population. Were you Mm -hmm. able to identify any etiologies as to why those live birth rates were lower? Yeah, I I wouldn't say that we've identified any specific etiologies. I think your point about the fibroids is a very good one and very important. We, in looking at sort of the prevalence of uterine factor infertility in our population, the prevalence was actually quite low, and I think that's because the way that we were capturing uterine factor is not just anybody with fibroids, but people who specifically had, you know, they may have had an extensive myomectomy, so they're sort of categorized under uterine factor. Um, So it's not really getting at the full impact of fibroids, and that is something that we are very interested in looking at next. Did this study. So this is Laura Sheehan from Pacific Northwest Fertility in Seattle. And um, back when I was in fellowship in the dark ages, so this is... <laughs> Laura, I think over... we were in fel- I think I was in fellowship before you, so that I'm in like a paleolithic. I mean, just recently. Um, so this is like, uh, I finished in 2009 and I was at Stanford. And we um, published uh, really interesting inf- information looking at uh, Caucasian and Asian populations and fresh embryo transfers because mm-hmm. we just 
started talking to each other and saying like, gosh, our Asian patients are, you know, performing so well. They're getting all these eggs. Everything's great. But they definitely are not getting pregnant as easily. And so mm-hmm. we just sort of did a little bit of a retrospective and sort of population-based studies and saw that. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, Vic Fujimoto at UCSF really went with this and really started looking into it. And he actually found that in frozen transfers that the um, success rates started to equal out a little bit. And so I noticed that your study is all fresh transfers. And I'm just curious if you might want to um, take a look at it a little step further and looking at frozen embryo transfers. Yeah, that's a really good point. So our live birth rates were actually, I guess, cumulative in the sense that Um, We wanted to capture any live births resulting from any transfer following any given retrieval. So it did include a proportion of fresh and frozen transfers. But I think, as as you're alluding to, some of the prior studies have found that Asian patients have higher progesterone levels uh, toward the end of stimulation and sort of postulating if that's what's underlying that difference. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really interesting because... We didn't find a significant difference in the proportion of fresh and frozen transfers in our groups, but I think that that doesn't negate the possibility that there is something there, because it's possible that some patients do better with frozen and some patients do better with fresh. And so when we're just looking kind of casually and saying, oh, there's no difference, you know, in the in the use of fresh and frozen, I don't know that that actually answers our question. Yeah. We've also seen um, in our Asian population a much higher than expected estradiol level and mm-hmm. the stimulation cycles mm-hmm. and wondering if there's something that we just need to figure out a little bit more, but more of like a, over, a tendency towards hyperstimulation, higher levels of estrogen than you expect for the egg number that you're getting. Mm-hmm. And is that also something yeah. tailoring into outcomes that are different? Yeah, that's very interesting. And I will say that the initial underlying hypothesis was that there were differences in something like FSH, you know, polymorph receptor polymorphisms. And we were looking more along like a biological um, pathway in terms of trying to figure out the underlying reason um, for any differences. But because our initial results were so contradictory to what we expected, we just sort of followed the data where it took us, but that is, you know, kind of what we were thinking in the beginning. I actually love that your hypothesis was wrong. That's fascinating. (laughs) One quick question, something that you alluded to in your abstract that I thought was fascinating, was it looked like the black and non-Caucasian patients took longer to get to IVF. And I'm wondering if a lack of access to care Mm -hmm. or a hesitancy to come into fertility treatment could affect outcomes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, black and Hispanic patients had much longer durations of infertility. Actually, I think it was like 18 and 20 months, 24 months compared to 15 in white patients. And I think that's pretty consistent with the literature that we have. But in our models, including duration of infertility didn't change the model. So we ended up excluding it. But I do think you know, access to care is, is like the big elephant in the room. <laughs> yeah, well, fascinating work, and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your abstract with us. And again, congratulations on a job really well done. Thank you so much. Hi, and welcome back to FNS On Air, live from ASRM 2022. I'm Pietro Bordoletto, your co-host, and I'm joined today by Dr. Katherine Rakowski, past president of the ASRM. Dr. Rakowski, Welcome. Thank you so much, Pietro. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Is it nicer to be past president at an ASRM meeting? Does that mean the schedule gets any lighter or is it still go, go, go? 
it's still go, go, go. And actually, I am a go, go, go person, so I'm really sad to be going off the presidential chain. <laughs> well, we're glad that you've been at the meeting and you've been seeing all of the wonderful science that's been presented. What has stood out to you as most interesting, captivating, earth-shattering? What have you loved seeing? So, given my love of embryos, not surprisingly, probably the, the lecture that stands out most is the one by Nicholas Plachter. He was the second plenary speaker uh, yesterday, being Monday. And he talked about this amazing work he's doing using various different approaches and technologies in order to be able to identify self-fate and shape. And the visualizations of his images were just absolutely extraordinary. I reflected as I was listening to him, thinking, my God, just imagine getting up and going to work every day and thinking not just science, but no pun intended, but art as well. I mean, it was just absolutely incredible to see these images. Well, a lot of it, to me, was very hypothesis-generating. Like, now that we can see the cytoskeleton, these nuclear blebs that we give off when we squish cells during trophectoderm biopsy, it really makes you worry a little bit about what we're doing when we micromanipulate embryos. Totally. And, in fact, I mean, Paolo Renardo from UCSF years ago in mouse work showed that just actually pulling a mouse embryo into a pipette and then putting it back out into the culture media actually changed the expression of several genes. And so, yeah, as somebody who's handled literally thousands and thousands of embryos, and I'm now talking about myself, I've reflected over the years how we might be actually inducing some sort of damage to the embryos just by those sorts of manipulations. But with Plactus work, you're right. I mean, the thing that was one of the things out of many that was just so surprising was this business of this blebbing of DNA from interface nuclei. And of course, you know, one just has to, and this is in trophectomy themselves, not in the inner cell mass. But one just has to reflect on the implications of that in mosaicism, for example. Is this confined placental mosaicism? Is it all us manipulating embryos and, and, and causing some of this ourselves? Well, no, because we know that confined... It happens naturally. It happens naturally. So, I mean, obviously it's not the sole cause of it, but it does make one sort of reflect on the possibility there's a relationship with mosaicism. Well, it gives us all pause that we should uh, treat the embryo with respect. Absolutely. Because we don't know exactly what, what we're doing to it, but make sure we treat it with respect. Well, as I've trained now many many embryologists that is what I've said every single embryo should be handled as carefully and judiciously as possible and they're all irreplaceable beyond Dr. Plaka's plenary research has you seen anything in the oral sessions and the poster sessions that have turned you on to well so there was a and I, I'm not sure if it was a plenary or not it actually may have been a plenary earlier today on mouse embryo work but they've also been using these amazing rats as a model I forget the name of the rat. Uh, it's a nude rat. But it's a remarkable species in that the reproductive life continues during the life of the animal. There's no such thing as equivalent to human menopause. And so as a result of that, this actually presents this fantastic opportunity as a model in order to be able to try to tease apart ovarian aging from reproductive aging from uh, physical aging. And um, the work is just absolutely beautiful, and they're really identifying some remarkable and very interesting aspects of, re of mammalian reproduction as a result of this. And what's so cool about this rat species is that, just like with a bee colony, there's a queen rat. And she basically, they live in tunnels, and what they do, what the queen does is constantly pushing aside the females that try to kind of usurp her authority. And this, this is the way that she suppresses their reproductive capability by aggression. 
And in fact, it's what's so further, I mean, there's so many questions that can be asked using this model, but what I found so intriguing was that if you take one of these suppressed females and put them into an environment away from the queen, then they start cycling. So, I mean, this is a wonderful model and such a fascinating model that can really, really expand our knowledge on reproductive cyclicity and reproductive competency. So much good science at ASRM, not enough time. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dr. Rakowski. Pleasure. Hello, this is Rick Legault with a live podcast from uh, ASRM, Fertility and Sterility on Air. And we have with us today... Allison Komarowski. I'm a second-year fellow at Northwestern. Welcome, Allison. So you have some exciting research about the expansion of fertility preservation coverage. Tell us what you what you researched and what you found. Sure. Um, our study aimed to assess whether the legislation in Illinois, which began in 2019, mandating fertility preservation coverage, um, expanded to help patients in areas of higher disadvantaged neighborhoods, which we assessed by looking at area deprivation index, which uses census tracts to evaluate how disadvantaged a neighborhood is based on things like poverty, education level, and income inequality in the area. Great. Did you look into any individual records to see if uh, they truly match the average of their area? We didn't specifically look at the patient's particular demographics aside from their neighborhood disadvantage. Um, We wanted to kind of holistically understand if the neighborhoods we were reaching were changed by the insurance mandate. And unfortunately, we found that the median area deprivation index did not change, even with expansion of insurance coverage for medically indicated fertility preservation. We did reach more Medicaid patients with the expansion of the insurance mandate, which was very expansive in that it did include uh, Medicaid as well as private insurers. Were you able to get an idea on how many of these patients are actually being offered the service that are eligible from your data? I think that's a that's a really important question. Um, I think that is is probably an area where access um, and legislation are mismatched right now. And I think a lot of patients who are eligible for this insurance mandate probably aren't being offered these services. And so I think that that is a big gap that our study didn't address, which is just our patients even being offered these services. What sort of an increase did you see after the legislation as opposed to before the legislation? Um, Interestingly, the numbers didn't really increase too much in this particular study. I think there were about 400 patients um, over the course of four years that were counseled on medical fertility preservation. We had about 280 patients in those four years that underwent um, ovarian stimulation cycles. It was pretty evenly matched in the two years prior to the insurance mandate and the two years after the insurance mandate. And about 50% of the patients we saw lived in the highest, most advantaged quartile nationwide compared to only 4% of our patients were in the most disadvantaged nationwide quartile. So I think we have a lot of work to do in, in reaching patients who live in the more disadvantaged areas. And I think Unfortunately, legislation alone is probably not enough to to reach many of these patients. So what are your next steps in trying to help these patients achieve access? I think the next steps are trying to better understand what the barriers to care are. I think patients face a lot of potential barriers in that many of these patients have life-altering diagnoses at the time that they're also 
determining whether to undergo fertility preservation. They may have additional cost barriers outside of insurance coverage alone, including transportation to appointments, the frequency of of monitoring appointments for these cycles. So I think a more qualitative approach may be helpful in understanding what barriers these patients experience to to better understand how to advocate for their needs. Any uh, final parting thoughts here? I think the biggest one is just that legislation is definitely very important, but from this work, I've understood that it may just be a first step in helping patients with a wide variety of backgrounds access this care. Well, thank you for talking about this important work, and we look forward to seeing it published in the pages of Fertility and Sterility. Thank you so much. I am now here with Jessica Cantor, who is presenting Uterine Natural Killer Cell Biology and the Role in Early Pregnancy Establishment and Outcomes. Um, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us on Fertility and Sterility on Air. It's a pleasure and an honor to speak with you, and I think that this is a really interesting topic that so many of our listeners struggle with. Can you share a little bit about your work? Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to get the opportunity to talk with you. So this is just kind of a little review article that we wrote out of a goal to better understand what's out there already on uterine natural killer cells and what the data has to show us and actually kind of spurred along my own research into the realm of uterine natural killer cells while I was a fellow. Just to be clear, you can you measure a uterine natural killer cell when you do a peripheral blood draw? You absolutely cannot. <laughs> right. So is that point well understood by many people? No. And I think unfortunately that's a lot of where kind of the scary jumps in therapeutics come where we're measuring something with a test that we don't truly understand that's not reflective of the actual environment. And when it comes down to in writing this review article, we found that really, although they are natural killer cells in both environments, their functionality and their overall, some of their structural components are even different. And the way they act is completely different. So it's right. not a true so reflection. They, so they share a name. They're both called a natural killer cell, but they're actually completely separate functionally very different. And one of the things that I find a little bit scary in this realm is the fact that some of these therapeutics are geared at lowering natural killer cell numbers when in fact natural killer cells at the level of the uterus are normal and they actually impact pregnancy implantation in a positive way. And I think this is something this article can shed a little bit of light on. Yeah. So just because I don't have the article in front of me and now you've (laughs) totally piqued my curiosity, what is a uterine natural killer cell and what is its role within the uterus? So a uterine natural killer cell is you know, structurally similar to its peripheral blood counterpart, but rather than having a predominantly cytotoxic and cytolytic effect the way the peripheral blood natural killer cells do, instead we find that it serves a role within the uterus that may enhance implantation. And some of the ways that we describe this role in this review article are, you know, we see based on physiology the number of uterine natural killer cells actually increases around the window of implantation. Biology would not do that if they were not useful with regards to implantation. And they cluster around the spiral arteries. And there's a thought that they may help improve the blood flow to the area where the trophoblasts will invade, help with that trophoblast invasion itself, and maybe even promote trophoblast invasion, and kind of help with normal Immune tolerance, right? Immune tolerance, as well as normal kind of just implantation in and of itself. Right, so we want some degree of 
immune interaction in the endometrium and in the uterus to allow for foreign material to implant. Right. Is that correct? It is very correct. And there, I mean, and there's some interesting data, which I don't think ultimately made it actually into this review article, but that uterine natural killer cells may then secondarily be important later in pregnancy with regards to pathogens that cross the placenta and helping to promote health of a growing conceptus and reduce burden of exogenous pathogens. So if you were to summarize for our listeners kind of two, what I always say, nuggets, like (laughs) what are two things that our listeners can take away from this review paper? What are those? Uterine natural killer cells are a completely different entity than what we see in the peripheral blood. And uterine natural killer cells may actually be integral in promotion of normal pregnancy development and placentation. I love it. Thank you. That's really, I think, really interesting work and I think just good nuggets to keep in mind as we sometimes struggle with the measurement of peripheral natural killer cells. They're not a surrogate marker for what's going on inside the uterus. Totally agree. Hi, everyone. This is Eve Feinberg. I am podcasting from ASRM Live, and I am with Dr. Richard Scott, who's here with me in the booth today. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of their groups, projects, and research, and what's coming up on the horizon. Uh, Well, thank you very much, Dr. Feinberg. Uh, It's a a pleasure to be here, and it's great to see you and uh, to be at the meeting and uh, learning again. It's really fun. I think learning is what it's all about, and I think that sometimes the less you know, the more rapidly you learn, but the more you know, the more you get to refine that knowledge over time. And so it really is this lifelong learning exercise that we all go through. So tell me a little bit um, about what are some of the newer things that your group is looking at? I think one of the more exciting things we're doing is uh, we're interested in uh, why embryos sometimes grow slower or arrest. And in fact, that may occur after transfer and, and for quite some time. And we have some data to suggest that it's associated with mitochondrial function, not number, not DNA copy number, but, but function. And in fact, it's abnormalities in mitophagy that in fact are, are probably regulating and inhibiting the energy metabolism of the embryos. And so one thing that I've noticed in my own clinical practice is that our older patients are not blastulating on day five nearly as frequently. And when we look at the proportion of blastocyst biopsies that we do on day six for patients who are older than 35, we're seeing many more day six biopsies as opposed to day five. Do you think that's pretty consistent with what you're seeing? That's completely consistent uh, with what we're seeing, and I think it's, it's exactly right. Older patients uh, divide more slowly and have a higher arrest rate. And some of that very likely is due to these alterations in reprocessing of mitochondria. That's one reason that older patients sometimes don't implant, because their embryos may not blastulate until quite late, sometimes till day seven. And now they're out of the window of implantation or optimal implantation, and they have higher losses. Yeah, it's funny. We were just talking about this the other day in our group. We had a patient who showed up for her embryo transfer. We still do fresh transfers in Northwestern, but she showed up for her embryo transfer on day five, and she had a morula, and she didn't get pregnant. And we really asked her ourselves the question, in hindsight, would we have been better growing that embryo to day six and then freezing and then resynchronizing with a frozen embryo transfer? Ashley Teeks from our group wrote a paper that roughly addresses that question. It's with retrospective data only, so there's limits, of course. But in fact, it showed just that. Many of those embryos, particularly in older patients, are going to blastulate on day seven. 
And their sustained implantation rate at their U-point is 55%. Wow. And it is certainly, we got nothing like that when we transferred them on day five. And so, uh, yes, I think embryos are just slow and time out. And if you can cryopreserve them once they blastulate, resynchronize them, just as you said, that, that it's probably better care. Yeah, and one, one other thing. I mean, I think about when we think about the impact of aging on cells and not just oocytes, but mm-hmm. really all cells, I really think about the mitochondria as a battery. And so you have to have probably more than just a euploid embryo. You have to have a euploid embryo, cellular machinery, good cytoplasm, and good mitochondria. Um Absolutely. Is there any way to improve your mitochondrial function? I think that's the, the million-dollar question, right? Well, that's what we're working on, and that's what I would love to, to share with you. And so Shiny Titus and Emery Selly are two of the investigators in our group, and, and I'm working on it. And we have taken a chemical called CCCP, which actually blocks oxidative force phosphorylation. It's somewhat preferentially... Like the Krebs cycle? Yeah, like that one. <laughs> and it, it blocks it, particularly in those that may, in fact, be slightly impaired, that are, have problems and have not gone through fusion fission appropriately. And in essence, it forces them into mitophagy where they're going to get cleared. And when that happens, we, we, we uh, did an experiment recently where we took arrested embryos, two cells uh, on day two, two cells on day three. I understand it's a little bit of a, you can argue about the definition, but that's a pretty good definition. And if you do nothing, only three or 4% of them ever divide again. Mm -hmm. But if you, but if you put them in a solution with CCCP at levels that have already been developed in the murine model, in fact, they start dividing again and 40 to 50% of those embryos will continue into development. So do you think that you can change the culture media of how we're growing embryos to enhance that dividing? And then what happens when those embryos are then placed in vivo? That's exactly right. There, there's, you have a hundred legitimate questions that I would have to answer before <laughs> either one of us would consider uh, doing that clinically. But this is where the story begins. We've been able to alter the behavior of embryos, certainly in the Miri model, but now human embryos. Now we need to know if it's really changing anything. Now we need to know if it's safe. Now we need to look at the genetics and epigenetics. There, there are so many things that need to be done. But I think it is exciting to think that there is a major physiologic component of aging, reproductive aging, but like all aging, um, that we may be able to enhance by being uh, a little more clever with our culture systems. So we'll see what the future brings, but it's exciting. Yeah, that's really exciting. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to come over and speak with me on the podcast. And I really known you for a long time and I always really appreciate your wisdom. Well, well, thank you so much. It's such a, such a pleasure seeing you here. Thank you. I am now joined by Drs. Paul Pertea and Dominique DeZiegler, and we're going to be talking a little bit about recurrent implantation failure, defining what it is. I really want to hear an update on this Lugano conference that happened, the challenges in diagnosing recurrent implantation failure, and where you are at on creating a consensus document. Paul, can you share a little bit about the history of how this group came together? Yes, uh, thank you for this question. So indeed, we, we tried to, by being challenged every day in the clinical practice, by being challenged by the fact that we encounter reproductive failure, and by also having data on record implantation failure, we started to ponder whether record implantation failure really exists. And in your practice, how are you currently defining recurrent implantation failure? And I know that this has preceded 
by really what I consider to be a landmark paper that you did looking at the likelihood of implantation after one, two, and three euploid embryos. So first, I guess my first question is, for the listeners that may not have read that paper, can you share what those data are? And then from those data, how do you frame the definition? How do you, Dr. Pertea, frame the definition of what is RAF? So that, the, the idea of that paper came in uh, ESHRA in Barcelona, and it was a discussion with Dominic and Richard Scott on how can we establish a definition for RIF. So that is how we conceived that design for the study. In that study, indeed, we have uh, used only euploid embryos because when you talk about record implantation failure, it's either the embryo, either the endometrium, either some kind of desynchrony between those two, and therefore we wanted to control for the embryo. So this is why, uh, with the help of Richard, we achieved this kind of data only by using and transferring uh, frozen in frozen cycles euploid embryos. In that study, we reported actually that after the first, the second, and the third embryo transfer, the implantation rates remain more or less the same, similar. So after the first embryo transfer, we had 69.9% implantation rates. After the second one was 59.9%, and after the third one was 60.3%. So more or less the same. So if there were to be an endometrial cause of failure, implantation failure, in that case, that would probably select those patients in the second and the third one. So therefore, implantation should have been much lower. And that's not the case. So this is why I, we, we believe today that record implantation failure, as it was described before, like a number of serial numbers of ember transfer uh, that failed, doesn't really exist. Uh, first of all, we do not have uh, the investigated tools to, to try to diagnose what causes those embryos to fail to implant. Because even when you have euploid embryos, not all of them implant. Right. So going back to something you just said, um, you said that recurrent implantation failure doesn't exist? Doesn't really exist in the form that we believed that before. Because we always said, like, if a number of embryo transfers were performed or a number of embryos were transferred and they failed, then therefore we talked about recurrent implantation failure. Now, uh, in our study, we show that the actual recurrence of rifts exists. It's probably less than 5%. And it could be maybe that in real life it's even less than that because we cannot assume that the causes of failure are identical each month. So this is one of the targets in our discussion in the workshop that we had in Lugano. This is what we question, is whether... The definition is real. First of all, the recurrent in recurrent implantation failure, what, what does it stand for? Is it three ember transfer? Is it four? Is it ten? So um, by taking this uh, factor into account, we had different authors who have also published in FNS showing that when you, you have non-tested embryos, for some group of ages, it can be more than ten embryos to be transferred before you consider this to be a real um, anomaly. And is that assuming that you've 
eliminated the possibility of uterine factors, malarian anomalies, hydrosalpinges. Like, is this in a pristine population of patients who have no other identifiable etiology for why their embryos may not have implanted? First of all, in our paper, uh, we only looked into morphological normal uterus, screened by ultrasound, of course, eliminating uh, hysteroscopy or hysterosonography, and also by eliminating all other causes that can be related to a uterine factor for implantation failure. Of course, that with the investigating tools that we have today, I mean, we do not know exactly what will be in the future, but today a pre-ART screening should include all factors known for uterine factors to be responsible. And so I guess my big question is, in this Lugano meeting where you brought together experts from all over the world, really it was an international meeting, was there a lot of consensus or was there very little consensus in terms of what that definition means? It's a problem for patients because we talk about IVF success, ART success, but we fail to mention the causes of ART failures. And ART failures do occur, and patients who have undergone an embryo transfer are often told by the biologist who hands over the catheter that the embryo is beautiful. And the patient then feels, well, there must be something wrong with my womb if it does not implant. And this is the beginning of the misconception about repeated implantation failure that actually it's an issue of receptivity. Uh, the work by Paul Petea has shown that if it does exist, if it does exist, it only affects a very small number of patients having a euploid embryo. And the cause of ART failures is essentially the quality of the embryo. And that's a message that we have to pass on to the patients to actually make them understand that it is not coming from them and they should not feel guilty about it. Yeah, so I guess my question, bringing this back into the clinical realm, I unfortunately just checked a beta of a beloved patient of mine on her seventh or eighth euploid embryo transfer, and she has implantation, and then she has a clinical loss either at the embryonic stage or at the pre-embryonic stage. And I think the big question clinically that I struggle with is what is the next step for this patient? Is it a gestational carrier or should this patient use an egg donor using somebody else's eggs in her uterus? And I think that my natural inclination as a clinician is to blame the uterus and say, let's try a gestational carrier. And in my experience, that usually is successful. So are you arguing that she falls into that less than 5% that has true recurrent implantation failure, or is it just poor egg quality? Well, that's, an, that's a very complicated situation. I, I really believe that in this case, probably donor egg should be something more appropriate for her, because uh, even though we see today mosaic embryos can implant, even aneuploid embryos can implant, but they never deliver. So uh, although um, successive aneuploidy can happen, even though rare it can happen, probably for this patient, donor eggs or even a new ART cycle would probably be the best chance she has to get a pregnancy. 
Yeah, I don't know. I'll keep you posted. I think we're going to do a gestational care. She's 34. I think we're going to do a gestational carrier. Because, for example, you know, we, uh, when you look into uh, uterine transplantations, uh, some of these patients receive a very, let's say, old uterus, and it works quite well. Uh, and also we know when you have, for example, this is a very, very extreme example, but you have ectopic pregnancies. So sometimes very competent embryos can implant in very, let's say, uh, bizarre places that doesn't even have the same anatomy or structure as the uterus. So I always like to use the seed and the soil analogy, right? Is it the seed that you plant into the garden to allow it to grow, or is it the soil into which you implant it? And so you're arguing that it's 100% the seed or 95% the seed and less than 5% of the time. It's the soil. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, and and I, but this uh, um, this uh, conclusion comes only in let's say morphological normal uterus. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about uh, big fibroids or uh, uh, Müllerian anomalies or other problems, uh, Ashermans and so forth, that can of course can impair results. But we have seen uh, with time that. Pregnancy can happen in a, in, a, in a very, very atrophic endometrium, and they still implant. Certainly, it's not slower, but they still can happen. Yeah, super interesting, and I look forward to seeing the consensus statement put forth by the Lugano consensus statement on recurrent implantation failure. Thank you both. But we hope, if you're going to come to Lugano next time. I will absolutely come to Lugano next time. Thank you. Thank you, Eve. Good afternoon, everyone from Anaheim, California. My name is Luis Hoyos. I'm an REI at IVF Florida from Miami, Florida, and I'm here with... Hi, I'm Tom Masterson. I'm a reproductive urologist also in Miami, Florida, and I work very closely with uh, Dr. Luis Hoyos here. That's right. So we want to talk to uh, to you guys mainly about collaboration with between the reproductive urologist and the reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist. Uh, so I want to hear from Dr. Masterson what he thinks are indications for us to refer patients to reproductive urology. Yeah, so this is a great topic. Traditionally, reproductive care started with the female patients, and that paradigm is changing due to availability of home-based sperm testing kits and I think just a greater interest on the male side. The reality is that about 40% of couples will have uh, some male factor fertility uh, contributing to their problem. So depending on where patients start, you know, if we see a guy who comes in wanting an evaluation, you know, we'll start with simple things, semen analysis and blood work. You know, if we see abnormalities in that that may require IVF or IUI as an intervention, you know, we pretty quickly will refer the female. And I think the same is starting to happen in reverse. I'm noticing more patients who are starting with the female evaluation. If they see any abnormalities in semen analysis, you know, they're pretty quick to refer for their male partners uh, to urology. Yeah, and I think that's pretty consistent with the literature so far, which is the main social referrals for reproductive urologists are actually the REIs. And I would say that, you know, it's not only for the reproductive point of view. I mean, we know that they could have health implications, and the semen analysis will be a reflection on so, uh, some health abnormality that could be happening and they weren't an evaluation by a reproductive urologist. Yeah, definitely. So 
the lower your sperm count, the higher the chance that you're going to have some other underlying medical condition. So if you look at patients who have zero sperm counts, we have higher incidence of testicular cancer, diabetes, heart attacks within the next like 10 to 20 years. And we know that guys don't like going to the doctor. So many times it's when they're having a fertility issue, the wife is forcing their husband to get evaluated that you will find some of these underlying diagnoses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we know that the main indication or the main reason why REIs tend to uh, refer the male patient to urology is a low concentration. But it should also be done when you have abnormalities in motility, right? Oh, completely, totally agree. So, I mean, you are correct. Most will look at, you know, concentrations and will kind of base things off of that. And that's where actually most of the data that kind of looks at these comorbidities, they'll use concentration cutoffs. But if people have low motility, you know, they can have obstructive issues. You know, they can have still sperm production issues. uh, And many of that, many of them are reversible. Tom, you were actually mentioning something uh, very interesting is the the use of home sperm kits. What is your opinion on those? Yeah, so these are fairly new and controversial. So this is totally my opinion. Um, I think they're a great screening test. Semen analysis is an awkward exam. It is not like going to Quest or LabCorp and having blood drawn. You know, you're put in a room, you're told to provide an ejaculated sample however you can. It's not a comfortable environment. By taking the testing home, I think you're opening it up to more patients and more people are going to be interested in this kind of in this kind of testing. You know, the kind of way I equate this to is, you know, blood pressure monitoring. You can go to CVS, sit down, get your blood pressure taken on a little machine. You don't have to go to your doctor's office to get to get that performed. And if you have an abnormal result, you're more motivated to then follow up on it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a wonderful screening test. I have not been using them for actual like lab-based results, uh, but I am seeing more patients now because they'll come back with these lower abnormal home-based tests, uh, and then we'll end up working them up. For the most part, it's the azospermia, the zero, zero sperm count patients I'll see. Mm-hmm. So you say basically if there's an abnormality, then we'll need to confirm it with a formal semen analysis. But maybe if the home semen analysis is normal, then maybe we're good? I mean, possibly. Uh, my, my concern with them is, you know, it, it's one test. Any of the guidelines that we use will tell you that you should do two tests. And we also kind of have to interpret a little bit of this in the context of most of the testing we do is in patients who are actively trying to have children. So if you're not and you're taking this test at home and you have a one-time good result, you might think, oh, I'm good. I never have to worry about this again. And that may or may not be true. We don't know yet. And so Dr. Masterson was actually giving a postgraduate course yesterday. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So the title of our course was Taking the uh, OR to the Clinic. So a lot of the, the teaching was on, like, hysteroscopy, you know, things that are focused on, the, you know, the, the female side. Um, I had the pleasure of teaching uh, what's called a TESA, a testicular sperm extraction. It's a procedure that we as, as reproductive urologists do fairly frequently, uh, either to get sperm or to help us diagnose what's going on with a patient. Uh, but I was teaching it to a, an REI crowd, a, a you know, gynecologist, who are pretty, pretty uncomfortable with it. But I actually think this is a great skill for you to have in your back pocket. <laughs> in which situations would you do a TESA? Yes, yeah, great question. So I'm going to give you two broad answers. There's medical reasons, uh-huh. and then we're going to call them social reasons. Okay. <laughs> so medical reasons are going to be you know, patients who have obstruction. Yeah. So someone who's had prior vasectomy, you're trying to get sperm from them. A TESA is a great way to get fresh sperm. 
I don't think it's a great way to get fresh sperm that you're intending to freeze and then use as a frozen IVF cycle, um, but it's a great way to actually obtain sperm fresh. Um, if you have patients who don't fit into the two uh, categories of azospermia, so obstruction, non-obstruction, and you're not sure which they are, it can be helpful. So just as a quick recap, in obstructed patients, you anticipate testicles that are normal-sized with a normal FSH. Think about a guy who got a vasectomy, was fertile beforehand, all we did was block him, so why would any of his hormones change? They don't. The obstructed patients usually have small testicles with a very high FSH. Using those two criteria, there's about 90% accuracy. Like I can say to the patient, you know, hey, there's a 90% chance you're going you're gonna to have sperm, or there's a 90% chance that you have a production defect. When you have patients who fall in between, so small testicles, normal hormones, or large testicles with abnormal, I'm not quite sure. And in, in my practice, we do a lot of fresh sperm retrievals. I don't want to be finding out the day of the wife's egg retrieval what's going on. So a, a quick, dirty Tezza is a great way to find that out. So that's more medical indications. Now, what are some social indications? So as I said, we do fresh retrievals. What happens when your urologist doesn't show up for whatever reason, got sick, car accident, right, overslept, and now you've got the patient on the table, you know, the wife's going to have her egg retrieval later on. How are you going to de deal with this? Well, maybe you can wait for some, someone else to come, or if you're comfortable doing a quick and dirty testis aspiration, you know, you can save the day. I can tell you in my own practice, there was a situation where we had a frozen sperm sample. Something happened to the sample, and when they thought it, all the sperm were dead, not usable. I got a call frantically that, hey, we thawed the sample. We're collecting the wife's eggs in, you know, 30 minutes to an hour. What, are we, what, what can you do? I'm like, I'm boarding a plane right now. I can't, I can't be there. And fortunately, that particular REI was comfortable doing a, a quick testis aspiration, and they were able to move forward with the IVF cycle. So it's a good skill to have. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's also particularly relevant nowadays when we're talking about um, the availability of specialists or fertility doctors, um, you know, throughout the country, and how maybe we have a big, well, we have a big underserved population. And, and I'm sure that the number of available fertility specialists is not only related to, you know, the REIs and abilities, but probably also andrologists. Would you agree? Yeah, so, I, you know, I think andrology is a definitely under underrepresented population of physicians. Uh, you know, just talking, you know, throughout this meeting, you know, we have people who are in more remote areas where their nearest urologist who specializes in fertility might be an hour and a half to two hours away. So it can be difficult uh, to coordinate care. You know, we're very lucky. We're in a metropolitan area where we have several different urologists who, who practice this way um, and multiple IVF centers. But that's not true for everybody. So having, having ways to sort of, you know, negotiate problems, it's helpful. So if you're able to, again, you're comfortable sticking a needle in, you know how to do it safely so that you're not going to damage, you know, the epididymis, the, te the spermatic cord, anything that may cause bleeding problems, um, you know, you can truly save the day in a pinch. Yeah. I mean, I, that could be also within the scope of the uh, REI, if need be. I mean, we do take care of uh, couples, you know, oh, yeah. men, men and women. So, you know, if we don't have a reproductive urology, urologist available, 
then you know like you said that that extra skill can save the day so how did the REIs take it yesterday when you were trying to teach them some were more interested than others uh, so you know we were we had dog testicles as our specimens to use so it was a little bit dirtier than i would say some of the other stations that we had available But most of them, uh, I would say actually most of the ones coming from Europe were actually fairly comfortable doing it and had got some training. But again, they typically will rely upon their urologist to do it. Um, the ones here from the U.S., I don't think any of them had in their training tempted any of it. And I mean, I got to say, I, I never had that type of training. Oh, I mean, and, and the reality is most of these academic centers where they have training programs have plenty of people available to do those procedures just like i've never done any hysteroscopy i've never done an, you know an embryo transfer i think you're true and i'm never going to try to <laughs> <laughs> now you had said you saw you went to an interesting talk on progressive motility tell us about that well you know tom and i have been talking for months now you know what is the the relevance of progressive motility in the setting of total motility i mean classically we've been taught that we should look at total model count now is there a role for total progressive model count instead as a marker of you know outcomes whether you know IUI IVF so we just happened to run into an oral that was presented today that was from the University of Wisconsin if I'm not mistaken that was trying to look at pregnancy rates uh, with total progressive model counts under 5 million because you know classically again we've been taught that if the total model count is less than 5 million then the pregnancy rates are not zero but they are severely diminished, mm. right? Uh, but, you know, there are some couples that decide to move forward with the IUI despite this. So they were trying to look at pregnancy rates among these couples using progressive model count instead. And they found that unless the total progressive model count goes under 1 million, that the pregnancy rates are actually pretty good. You know, they do not significantly wow. decrease. So, you know, these patients can actually move ahead with, with, with an IUI, and they do not necessarily need to be canceled. Now, were they representing any what uh, percentage of the sample had progressive motility? Because you were using whole numbers there, 5 million total moving. So it was 5 million total progressive. Progressive. And was this post-wash or pre-wash? That was post-wash. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, so apparently uh, they were saying that their embryologists are trained at looking at the total progressive model count post-wash. Yeah. So the, that's how they can actually come out with that number. Oh, interesting. Now, do you know in your own lab, do you guys have particular cutoffs for IUI? So, you know, usually we cancel patients. And again, you know, I'm a strong believer of, you know, as long as the patient has been appropriately, properly canceled, the decision is theirs. Yeah. Right? So if we have a total model count that is under 5 million, you know, we will tell them, you know, pregnancy rates are likely to be lower, but, you know, they're not zero. And there's, there's a, a paper from uh, Blake Evans that actually also look at pregnancy rates according to total model count. And he also described that even though pregnancy rates will decrease, I mean, they're not zero and pregnancies do happen. So we should not be withholding the insemination if the couple to being properly counseled wants to move forward. Oh, interesting. So just along those lines of abnormalities that patients will see on their semen analysis reports, let's talk about morphology. Oh, morphology. Okay. Let's have you start. When you have a patient, you see abnormal morphology. How, what do you tell patients? I tell them that it's a parameter that has not been associated with uh, the chance of them conceiving on their own. 
and that I really do not pay attention to it unless it's a uniform abnormality such as globosal spermia. No, I think that's a, that's a great explanation of it. I will tell patients that of all, we have all of these semen analysis parameters. You know, there's three that I really care about, and the rest I kind of will glance at, and they need to be taken in context. And I agree with you. If there is a single uniform abnormality, that's very different than saying that the sperm has tapered heads, some body defects, some tail defects. Uh, but there's a great paper that came out of Baylor now, probably about five, maybe it's even ten years ago, actually, where they were looking at IUI cycles using different WHO cutoffs for morphology. They looked at first-time cycles and using cutoffs of 4%, 1%, and 0% morphology. And while there was a difference in outcomes between 0% and 4%, meaning that patients with 4% had a greater frequency of pregnancies after the first cycle, even 25% of the people with totally abnormal sperm had a pregnancy. So I tell patients that it a morphology defect does not make you infertile. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what is not an indication for IVF. It doesn't mean that they cannot get pregnant on their own. I think that, you know, we just we become very strict in the way we classify morphology, and we're seeing probably potentially more and more abnormalities in that regard. Yeah. So I will, actually, let's even take a step further back and just say semen analysis. When you tell a guy to get a semen test, what do you tell them about the test? Or what, it, what is it telling them? Basically, I tell them that men are really variable. And uh, if I see that there is any abnormal parameter or the morphology, mm-hmm. usually, I will repeat the test. Totally. Totally agree with that. The reason I ask this is I like to clarify with patients to tell them a semen analysis really is not a fertility test. Unless it has zero sperm, I really can't tell you that you're infertile but it gives me an idea of your fertility potential. So I always try to give them that context because I will have patients come to me very upset because they have low sperm count and think that they can never have children That's right. and that they're never going to have kids. And I try to reassure them if they have even just one sperm, there's a chance that they can get pregnant. That's correct. That's correct. I mean, I, I will tell them, I mean, you have sperm, right? So we can work with this. We just need to find the proper way to do so. Yeah, totally agree. Well, it's been our pleasure to be with you guys today. So we're going to leave you live from Anaheim, California. Tom and I will be heading back to Miami where we will go fishing hopefully over the next couple of weeks and then we can have more insightful conversations about sperm. Yeah, this is great. We should do it again sometime. That's right. Thank you, everyone. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air. Brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.